This morning I'm reading from Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Friday night, I was at the uh, football game at high school, and it was homecoming, so the halftime, if you were there, you realized was all homecoming stuff, no band, and our high school band does such a good job, and so uh, it was quite uh, interesting then because uh, folks kept their seats when the game was over, and they said that the band was going to play. So that's why they kept their seats, and jokingly, I guess having the sermon on my mind, I said to the folks uh, uh, that I was with, I said, I guess this is like the doxology then. And um, the doxology is is a a doxology, is a hymn of praise uh, that comes at the end sometimes of a song, or a poem, or a letter. And uh, that's what it is. And and then there is the doxology, and the doxology is um, a certain tune that if you've grown up in church where they sing the doxology, you're quite familiar with that tune. And so the band had made their way to the side uh, there, and as they were on the, the side, all of a sudden the music started, and sure enough, it was the doxology that they began to play that tune. Da, 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 da. It just came out. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. And as I listened to it, for me, knowing the words, the words just kind of came, you know, into my mind as the music came out. It was rather remarkable, amazing. Well, uh, that's what happens here. Jude's letter ends with a doxology. And it's a fascinating way to end such a letter because it's been full of warning. He has warned the church again and again and again. Uh, He has warned the church about false teachers. Teachers who make their way among them that come from within, that purport to be followers of Christ, but they don't preach the gospel And he has warned them. And so uh, he does not end on a warning note. He ends on a celebratory and exciting note. And so this morning we, as you have noticed, are twisting things up a bit. I'm preaching now. We'll sing later. Our own doxology will come at the end of the service today. And so what is the warning that he, uh, or the, the doxology that he gives? It consists of two parts. Praise God for what he can do. And praise God for who he was and is and always will be. Praise God for what he can do. And praise God for what he was and is and always will be. And so what what is it that God can do? Now to him who is able. I love the tiny phrase. To him who is able. Uh, To be able means that God can. Uh, This reminds me of J.D. Greer's statement in his book, Gospel. Uh, He says that he measures God's compassion by the crucifixion and God's power by the resurrection. 
I completely agree. We have an able God who also wants to act on our behalf. And so the crucifixion says God can and um, uh, God cares and the resurrection says God indeed can. So what is he able to do? Uh, He's able to keep us. Now, it is the third time that the word shows up in Jude's letter. Uh, The first time is in verse 1, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. And so Jesus keeps us. But then you get to verse 21, and we are instructed to keep ourselves in the love of God. That's verse 21. So Jesus keeps us, but we are to keep ourselves. Then we get to uh, verse 24, and he is able to keep us. Let's look at what the word means. It means to guard, to watch over, to protect So God is able to guard, to watch over, to protect, right? He keeps us. This is, in a sense, in this tiny letter of Jude, a keeping sandwich, right? Uh, This is the keeping Oreo, if you will. Uh, This layer God keeps, this layer underneath God keeps. And while he is keeping us, we are able to keep ourselves, plural, Uh, We, plural, as the church, keep ourselves while God is keeping us. This is this dynamic, this dichotomy in a sense of what it means to walk with God. You see, uh, what Mark is describing in the video is that he grew up with the mindset and the teaching that he had to keep himself. And if he kept himself, then things would go well and God would look on him and smile and say, hey, there's my boy. He's doing the work, keeping himself, keeping a list of rules and regulations, doing what it is that he needs to do in order to earn favor from me. So Mark grew up with that legalism, with that idea that indeed he must be the one who keeps himself. Not the case. Uh, We don't keep ourselves in order for God to keep us. We keep ourselves because God is keeping us. That's how it must be understood. Uh, Paul uh, got this, uh, this, uh, this balance well. Uh, when he uh, said to us in Philippians 2, Philippians 2, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. If you take that simple, those two verses and summarize it in a simple statement, the statement would be this, work out what God works in. Work out what God works in. God is working into your lives. Now work out what it is that he's putting in. Uh, What we call this in theology is sanctification. All right, so uh, what I want you to get this morning, and I I think this is so difficult for so many people, it is a difficult construct to get even at times, is that when you come to God by faith in Christ, you are declared righteous. 
Um, I love what the authors of the bookends, Jerry, Jerry Bridges says, uh, bookends to the Christian life. Bridges says it's like this, it is just as if you had always obeyed. When you come to God by faith in Christ, you are declared righteous. You are declared just as if you had always obeyed. That happens at the moment of salvation, at the point of conversion. You are righteous. You are free of the guilt and the weight of your sin. If you, from that point on, carry guilt, it's on you. God has never intended you to do that. Uh, Others say justification just as if you had never sinned. Bridges gives the positive just as if you had always obeyed. All right, that is your standing before God. And that will never change. Uh, You are in Christ. You are righteous before him. And then the rest of your life, you work that out. You work that out. You become who you are already declared to be by God in Christ. That's sanctification. That's becoming more like Christ. Does that make sense? This is key. If you do not get this, you will either spend your life in one of two ways. And this can go both ways. And Paul addressed both of them, one in Romans 6 and the other in Galatians 5. You will either spend your life sinning like crazy because, oh, I'm declared righteous, you say. And since I'm declared righteous, what? Should we go on sinning? Paul says, Romans 6, 1, so that grace may abound. Of course not, he says. All right, so I would say this to you. Please hear me. I say it with love and compassion. If you sit here this morning and you say, I've come to God by faith in Christ, but I can do anything I want, any way I want, you have not come to God by faith in Christ. God does in no way give you that kind of license to sin. Grace is not a license for you to sin and for you to live any way you want. No, when you do, there will be guilt, there will be fear, there will be this dread of sin that will come upon your conscience. But then there's the other extreme, right? That I have to somehow prove my righteousness. I I have to gain it myself. Not at all. Not at all. It is given to you. That's what God is able to do. So what is he going to do? He keeps us from stumbling. He keeps us from stumbling to make us stand. There's the negative and the positive. Look at this. Now, him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So God keeps you from stumbling. He keeps you from rushing headlong into self-destruction. But in the converse of that is he makes you stand. Where? Before his presence. What is his presence? All right, so, so folks, this is a morning. This doxology is like a rich dessert with multiple layers, right? You, you can't just, just, you know, eat it like a Little Debbie cake. This is not Little Debbie cake material. This is a rich dessert. 
So, so what does it mean to stand before his presence? So let me go to Paul writing to Timothy and talking about who God is. First Timothy 6, 16, uh, speaking of God who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. God dwells in unapproachable light. He's blinding. He cannot be seen. When Moses went up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, though Moses did not even look on the face of God, when Moses came down, just the glow on Moses was blinding to the people of being in the very presence of God. And so we have diminished him. We think too little of him this morning. We have a view of God as the big man upstairs or whatever it is. Or he is simply a byword on the football field or on the soccer field. He is indeed the God who dwells in unapproachable light. As a matter of fact, when his Son Christ becomes a man and comes screaming into the world. Verse 16 of Matthew 4 says, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great what class? Light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a what? Light has dawned. Even Jesus who took on earthly flesh was light being born. John 1, 4, and 5, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He's light. This is the message, 1 John 1, 5, we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is what? Light. And in him is no darkness at all. We get to that grand scene in heaven, Revelation 21, 23. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. God is unapproachable, blinding, glorious, holy, immense, thick light. And you and I cannot stand in his presence. We cannot. Unless the keeper makes us able to stand. He keeps us from stumbling. And he makes us stand. And how will he do it? With great joy. With great joy. That is exuberant celebration. All right, so many of you know I'm a South Carolina fan, and that's rough most years. I'll give you that. All right, to be a South Carolina fan. They don't win near as many games as I wish they would, but I was in Columbia yesterday. We were playing a team that honestly I assumed we would easily beat. Louisiana Tech, though they're a good team, and they have beaten some good teams. And sure enough, 
at the fo- in the fourth quarter, we have scored nothing. Our kicker, I felt so sorry for him. So last week I was there to watch them play, and he missed five kicks. Five. Five kicks. So this week... We uh, move the ball down the field, but not enough to score a touchdown. He comes up to kick. This is just a kid, right? And he kicks the ball, and when he does, he misses. And this kid, 70,000 people booed him. Oh, it was awful. I have a kid who played ball in college. I have a kid who plays ball at the high school level. I just, as a parent, I'm sitting there going, you know, this kid is getting booed, and so he, he got booed, and then they scored, and it was a field goal, and they made it. And all the talk around us was, wow, I wish we knew how to do that, and, you know, just stuff like that. We get the ball. We go down. We can't get in the end zone. He gets another chance, and he misses it again. Yes, this is seven in a row. Booze, thousands and tens of thousands of booze. And I'm like, ah. Oh. Going into the fourth quarter, it is 13 to nothing, and we're not winning at home against Louisiana Tech. And so we get the ball, drive it down, score rather quickly, and there's an extra point attempt. Now, last week, he missed all of those, as well as his field goal attempts and he comes up and he makes it and when he does the place erupts right everybody is just screaming and yelling and cheering and I'm thinking if I were him there are certain things I'd want to say to all the people who booed Um, or maybe you know sign language uh, would be appropriate at this point but he just goes off the field. The camera goes in on him, you know? And so we, it's 13 to 7. Well, uh, we, our defense, you know, holds them. We get the ball again, drive down the field, and sure enough, score again. And he gets, a, he gets the chance to get the go-ahead go point, right? And so he kicks, he hits it, and we're winning. 14 to 13, the place erupts. We're applauding for this kid, right? Everybody booed him. I didn't, but others did. And uh, now everybody's applauding. They get the ball, they drive it, and they drive it down. And sure enough, they hit a field goal uh, with 58 seconds to go in the game, and they're winning by a point. So with 58 seconds to go, absolutely zero timeouts, we get the ball on the 21-yard line, drive it down, amazing run by the quarterback, a couple of great passes. There are seven seconds to go, and guess whose shoulders the game is on? That poor kicker. And I'm just standing there thinking, poor guy. Like, and I leaned over to Dylan and I said, this is poetic justice. If this guy kicks this and wins the game, this is poetic justice. They line up, call a timeout, ice him. Line up, call a timeout again, ice the poor kid. And finally, the third time, line up, he kicks it. It goes through the upright. South Carolina wins. And it's this one kid who did it. Right? 
And there was as much as there can be over leather flying through two pieces of metal, great joy. (laughs) Right? Great joy. In the stadium, there's great joy. Everybody is celebrating. Uh, That's pigskin flying through two pieces of metal, right? And thousands of people are jumping up and down. And dignified people are acting a fool over that. Imagine the joy that the father gets when you who he is keeping keeps yourself. Imagine the joy that one day he will present us blameless, blameless we will stand before his presence. And in that unapproachable light, we will stand there without squinting an eye. Uh, we won't fall down and, and be, able, be unable to, to, to look on his face. On that day, you and I will look on the face of unapproachable light and we will approach the throne of grace and with great joy, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit will welcome the church in and we will sing the song of the redeemed. Amen. What great joy that will be. No joy like that have we ever known. We praise God for what he alone can do. And secondly, we praise God for who he was and is and always will be. He is the only God, he says, to the only God, our Savior. Please hear me. Please hear me. There is only one way to heaven, and it is through Christ. We said, well, Jerry, I've heard that all my life. I'm sure you have. But there can be moments of doubt of that very statement. I want to share with you logically why it makes no sense to be a universalist. Logically, why it makes no sense to say that there are multiple ways to heaven. Let's say that if you can get to, um, to Wilmington, because you can a couple of different ways, you can go 40, straight shot. Or you can go the way that we prefer to go when we go to the coast, which is through a bunch of different two-lane roads. Both of them get you there, one with a little bit of scenery, and the two-lane roads we find to be a bit quicker, but... 40 or two-lane roads. It's no big deal. It's no big deal unless somebody died to make one of those ways. And if somebody died to make one of those ways, but there was another way and he didn't have to die, then he'd be a fool. He'd be a fool. Because why would a fool, or why would a man die if there was a way around it? So universalists want to make Jesus one of the ways. But when they do so, they are taking Christ to himself, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So they're going against his words. But they're saying one of the ways is a fool who died when he didn't have to. Because you can get to God through Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam or being a good person or 
whatever the case may be. Logically, it totally falls apart. Jude says that they denied. In verse 4, they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. How does he describe God as our Savior? Several of my Old Testament students are sitting here this morning, bless their hearts, four times a week. Uh, they, they, they get my mouth. Um, and so <clears throat> we talked about this this week in the Old Testament. There is a thread woven throughout uh, Scripture, and the thread is of God as a rescuer. God as Savior. He indeed is the rescuer, or he indeed is the Savior. Um, If we push rewind back to Genesis, we discover that God rescued Noah. Uh, Noah and his family in the boat, God rescued them through the flood. We move forward just a tad, and uh, we discover that God rescued Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah. That awful city of sin, God sent angels into the city and poured them, uh, pulled them out, uh, uh, Lot and his family, because God is mighty to save. Uh, we discover that uh, God uh, rescued uh, Moses when he was in the basket out of the Nile River from his uh, uh, ultimate death. Because God is mighty to save that he rescued Israel out of Egypt. Uh, Because God indeed is mighty to save. He is a saving God. Uh, We discover that once Israel got out of Egypt uh, and they sinned and God sent serpents among them, he gave them a rescue. Put a serpent on a pole, make it out of bronze, and when everyone looks to it, they will also be saved because God is mighty to save Israel gets to that place looking across the Jordan. And when they cross the Jordan, their looming is the city of Jericho. And God says, do this, march around the city. And God rescues a certain prostitute by the name of Rahab who lives in the city wall because God is a rescuing God. He is mighty to save He rescued uh, Gideon from the armies of the Midianites because God indeed is mighty to save. And when Ruth, who was down in the land of Moab, where nothing uh, was going on from God's point of view until Naomi showed up, and Ruth went back to Bethlehem with Naomi and became the grandmother of King David in the genealogy of Jesus himself, we see a God who rescues because he indeed is mighty to save. God is a rescuing God. God rescued David from the jealous anger of King Saul because God is mighty to save. When the Israelites ended up in exile over in Babylon, uh, there were three boys who refused to bow down to King 
Neb's command to worship the golden statue. And when they refused to bow down, they were thrown into the fiery furnace. And when King Neb peered over into the furnace, he said, Behold, I see a fourth man like the son of gods, of the gods walking around. God rescued those boys out of that fiery furnace because God indeed is mighty to save. And just a few years after that, Daniel found himself uh, among the lions in the den only because he prayed to his God and looked toward Jerusalem while he was in exile. God rescued Daniel out of the lion's den because he is a God who is mighty to save. And when 400 years of silence happened between the old and the new, God sent his baby boy screaming into the world to rescue the world from the world's sin because God is a rescuing God. He is mighty to save. And then there was Peter who decided he wanted to come to Jesus walking on the water. And so he did what no one in this room has ever done. He walked on the water. That is, until he took his eyes off Jesus. And as he was sinking, he cried out to Jesus. And Jesus reached out and rescued him. Because God is a rescuing God. He is mighty to save. And when they were down in the boat, the disciples were on the boat and Jesus down underneath sleeping because he was tired. They, they, the storm came up and they went down and asked a question of Jesus that some of you have asked this week. Jesus, where are you? Do you not care? Do you not care that we're about to drown? Jesus awakes from his sleep, steps out to uh, the front of that boat, looks over the sea and simply speaks and the winds and the waves calm down and God God rescues them because God is a rescuing God. He is mighty to save. Amen? Amen. He is mighty to save. But then there are some of you who think my case is too hard for him. I hear what you're saying and he can rescue this one and he can rescue that one. Maybe we should phone up Paul. His name was Saul then. Saul had in his hands orders to kill Christians. And Saul is walking uh, toward uh, uh, Damascus planning to kill Christians when Jesus himself shows up and the light is so bright, what does it do? It blinds Saul. Maybe that's why he could write to Timothy, God dwells in unapproachable light. He knew He was blinded by it. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so what Saul did was fell on his face. God sent somebody to his rescue. It saved Saul. He became Paul because he is mighty to save we had time this morning, you could walk up on this stage or stand where you are and you could say, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I'm see, now I see. You could say with John Newton, uh, I don't know much, but this I know that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior because he is mighty to save. It's who he is. God is a rescuing, saving God. Peter says this, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. 
Not only is God mighty to save you from your sin, but God is mighty to save you through your circumstances. You say, Jerry, how do you know? Paul would make a, a, a really a, a philosophical argument for this from greater to less. Paul says, if God, who uh, did not spare his own son, but gave him freely for us all, so the greatest gift God could ever give is his son, will he not also freely with him give us all things? Is God going to, to save you and not give you everything you need to walk with him in this life? Yes. He's mighty to save. He's mighty to keep. Amen. He's mighty. And so that leads to, to this, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever, then, now, and then. Amen. So this results in something perhaps you've never thought of, that there is something that you and I can do that God himself cannot. There is something that you and I can do that God himself cannot. So if we go all the way back to prior to creation, God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit lived together in perfect harmony. They enjoyed one another. The Father praised the Son. The Son praised the Father. They both praised the Spirit. The Spirit praised them. They, they dwell in an impeccable relationship of great joy. And God said, let us make man in our image. And in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God said, let man multiply and replenish and fill the earth. And so we have. But it didn't take long until man sinned. And when man sinned, God, God rescued. He came to the rescued. So what is it that you and I can do that God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Spirit cannot do? The rescued can praise the rescuer. Not even the angels can join in the song. Have you thought of that? That one day in heaven, well, let me read it for you. And from the throne came a voice saying, Revelation 19, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. That's you and me. So God keeps us, but we make ourselves ready. Did you get that? It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. That's working out your own salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those, that's you, look at this, who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Wow. 
And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So when you came to God by faith in Christ, if you truly were born again, you, you received an invitation. It, it is to a wedding feast called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. That invitation will not be revoked from you. It is yours. And so you live the rest of your life with that invitation in hand. And there's something that it motivates you to do. You say, well, Jerry, how? Well, if you get invited to a fine dinner, at least the women do this more than the men, you immediately begin to ask yourself one question. What am I going to wear? Notice that the bride has dressed herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And then on that day, we will stand. I think the balcony of heaven will be filled with the angels for they cannot sing this song. And we will stand in his presence. His light will not be blinding. And the angels will lean over the balcony of heaven as we sing a song that no one else can sing because we have been rescued. Amen. Uh, We have been redeemed and the redeemed will sing to the redeemer and the rescued will praise the rescuer. And that's how we close our time this morning. Let's sing as you sing, picture him seated on the throne, our great Savior, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we worship him with myriads, myriads, millions and millions from every tribe, from every tongue, those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Let's sing to him.